Welcome back, everyone. We are your host, Jose Sanchez. And Jen Toslieb. And this is episode 80 of the Criminology Academy podcast, where we are criminally academic. In this episode, we have professors Mateus Santos and Shay James, along with doctoral student Daniel Thomas, to speak with us about the challenges of having a criminal record and finding employment. Mateus Santos is an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology at the University of South Florida in the United States. His current research focuses on trends in crime and justice, comparative criminology, crime policy, and quantitative methods. He has published more than 40 peer-reviewed articles in outlets such as Criminology, Journal of Research in Crime and Delinquency, Journal of Quantitative Criminology, Criminology and Public Policy, Social Science Research, and PLOS One. He is a frequent consultant for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime based in Austria, developing comparative data and analysis. Dr. Santos was previously a researcher at the Center for Crime and Public Safety Studies and a research advisor for the state government of Minas Gerais in Brazil. He holds a PhD in criminology and criminal justice from the University of Maryland and both an a master's in sociology and a bachelor's in social sciences from the Federal University of Minas Gerais in Brazil. Shay James is an associate professor in the Department of Criminology at the University of South Florida. Her research focuses on labor market decision-making where she considers outcomes such as the decision to offend or to hire someone with a criminal record. She has published in outlets such as Criminology, Journal of Research in Crime and Delinquency, Journal of Quantitative Criminology, Justice Quarterly, and Social Science Research. She earned her PhD in Criminology and Criminal Justice from the University of Maryland and both a Master's in Criminal Justice and a Bachelor's in Economics from Michigan State University. Daniel Thomas is a PhD student at the University of South Florida in the Department of Criminology. She received her Bachelor's in Criminology and Psychology as well as her Master's in Criminology from the University of South Florida. Ms. Thomas is a lead research assistant for the Crime Ideology and Treatment Evaluation Lab. Ms. Thomas also facilitates a life skills reentry program at a Florida state prison and works with many criminal justice stakeholders in the Tampa Bay area to facilitate successful reentry efforts for returning citizens. Her research interests include corrections, reentry and recidivism, program evaluation, and the employment crime relationship. Today, we will be focusing our discussion around a paper written by Mateus, Shea, and Danielle. It's titled, How to Overcome the Cost of a Criminal Record for Getting Hired. It was published in Criminology in March of 2023. With that being said, let's bring in Mateus, Shea, and Danielle. Welcome, Mateus, Shea, and Danielle. Thank you so much for joining Jose and I. Today, we are very excited to talk to you about your work. Thank you for having us, Jen. Thank you for having us, Jose. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you all. Looking forward to this. All right. So let's start off with kind of some table setting here. Can one of you or all of you tell us more about the rate of unemployment generally and then how it compares to individuals who have criminal records? All right. That's a wide known statistic that the unemployment rate of the United States, it's now it plateaued at 3.5%. And that is absolutely phenomenal, right? That's a phenomenal feature of the US economy that it's able to absorb so many workers and to even import people from abroad. And to be honest with you, we're not really sure what's the unemployment rate with people with a criminal record, right? We have some estimates out there, but those estimates are not reliable. The Bureau of Labor Statistics 
which keeps a very close track of the unemployment rate of the United States, as far as I can tell, does not measure the unemployment rate of people with a criminal record specifically, though I believe they should. And the reason for that is a very new study by Bushway and colleagues, which indicates that 46% of every person who is unemployed in America has a criminal record these days, right? The United States is the country that incarcerates most people on the planet, and mass incarceration has been going on for a very long time. And that fact alone has created this huge stock of people with criminal records who are just like roaming society and trying to get jobs. And they are, you know, in many ways, the most disadvantaged individuals in our society. The best estimate we have for the unemployment rate of people with a criminal record that we could find was one from the Prison Policy Initiative, some researchers from the Prison Policy Initiative, which puts it at 27%, right? So it's 27% for people for criminal record against 3.5% for the overall population. And I would add also that the fact that the unemployment rate of the overall population is so low gives us this unique opportunity to find jobs, to match people with a criminal record with potential employers. So we should really take advantage of that very tight labor market to try to tap into this pool of people who would benefit greatly from having a job after they are released from incarceration. I didn't realize that it was around 20% or just over 20% unemployment rate for people with criminal records. That's drastically different than overall. Yes. And estimates suggest up to one third of the U.S. adult population have a criminal record. So this is a huge population of people we're talking about. So this problem really is applying to a really broad scope of individuals in this country. Yeah, and that's something that we also touched on in our episode with people with criminal records and trying to get housing. And it seems like the two sort of go hand in hand. I think something that people often overlook and you know acknowledging that it's a huge challenge but it seems like sometimes people just zero in on the criminal record part and that's like what prevents people from obtaining jobs but oftentimes the people with criminal records also face other challenges with getting employment rights such as maybe education requirements could you tell us a little bit more about maybe some other challenges that are correlated with having a criminal record so again as we mentioned the fact Mass incarceration and the fact that it has been ongoing since you know for so many decades now have made marginalization, poverty, and a criminal record. These are very intertwined characteristics of marginalized disadvantaged individuals in the United States, right? So it begins with pre-existing disadvantages that are associated with having a criminal record, such as educational and social deficits, right? We do know that if you come from a house, let's say a stabilized household, chances are you have much greater risk of having a criminal record. And also if you have educational disadvantages, you're going to have a much greater probability of having a criminal record. The second element that I can list is that incarceration itself also brings about disadvantages from that experience, right? You can undergo a deterioration of skills, so let's say you're good at like you're good at wood cutting. If you're incarcerated, you cannot cut wood, chances are you're gonna forget that skill, right? You're gonna forget your social skills. You're gonna forget how to interact or how to act professionally in many ways. And there's also going to be a deterioration of your social relationships, right? So people who could help you get jobs, who'd be able to vouch for you, a former employer, a former professor a friend, you're going to lose those connections, right? Especially pro-social connections of people who were supporting you previously. Third (laughs) is that 
having a criminal record, as you mentioned, carries a wide range of collateral consequences, which also make it harder for you to get a job, such as restrictions on housing. But the big one, Jose, I would say, is restrictions on licensing and restrictions on even certain jobs cannot hire you, especially jobs that deal with vulnerable populations. So here in Florida, for instance, you cannot have jobs that involves going into people's houses, right? Oftentimes. So that really cuts you off from a range of like house repairs, house service jobs that, you know, pay very well, which are service jobs that can pay very well, that can provide you with a middle-class living standards. And finally, the last one, which is the big one that this particular article taps into is stigma, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that you have a record carries a great stigma. People make negative assumptions about who you are because of your criminal record, and chances are that's going to harm your employability greatly. We can discuss that. And then going off a little bit about what he was mentioning. So even if these employers, these businesses refrain from hiring applicants with a criminal record, they're unable to legally. Those businesses that are able legally to hire applicants with a record are they kind of refrain from doing it because they feel like these applicants signal a risk level and there's in liabilities that they often worry about. And then going off of what he was saying as well, on top of these deterioration of skills for those that have served extensive lengthy periods of time incarcerated, they experience obviously a significant gap on their resume that makes them less of a choice for employers compared to an applicant that has recent relevant work experience. So even if these individuals do carry these skills that would make them a successful employee for this business, they're looked down upon or often they're just overlooked in general because their work experience has their time capsule, so to speak, has deteriorated. It's just been too long for this individual to just hire them off the bat. And that stigma attached to having a criminal record goes into labeling them as unreliable, as untrustworthy when it comes to hiring them. So that stigma carries over, turns into a label, and these individuals' resumes are often just thrown out off the bat. Yeah. A big thing as well, if I may say, is the fact that one thing that helps you get a better job is the fact that you already have a job. So having a job already gives you a lot of leverage, as we know in academia. <laughs> and people with criminal record, since they're starting from zero, right? Since they're often starting from unemployment necessarily, and right, not from an educational transition or anything else like that, you know, that really takes away a lot of leverage that they have. So they have to, you know, make compromises. They end up being underemployed. There's starting to be an emergent research body that's suggesting not only is this label there, but that the applicants know this. And so that's sort of a perspective. It's not really what our study is touching on today, but I think that's a you know emerging area that we should all be considering is that individuals with a record know that they're sort of shorthanded and they're going out in the labor market with this internalized feeling. And that could change the way that they search for jobs, the way that they interact with employers during interviews. So understanding the stigma is sort of two ways is really important in labor dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. I think the point about the skills is also a good one. And I actually hadn't thought of that. But as you were talking about it, it actually reminded me of some of the people that I knew that went to prison, but they went to prison sort of before the advent of like smartphones and tablets and, you know, like these like high powered computers that we have now. So like right before that was 
going to take off. They went to prison. They come out and it's a completely different world. So it's not even that their skills deteriorated. They just never learned them in the first place. And so now they're coming mm-hmm. out having to play catch up on how do I use a computer? How do I use a smartphone? You know, like the social media stuff. What is that? Like, you know, what, like, these are skills that I, now I need to work, right? Like I need to know how to use a computer. I know how to, I need to know how to check email on my phone. Exactly. And relating this to the employment aspect, us three have sort of talked about this a lot, but now to apply for a job, most job applications are done online. So for a person who doesn't know how to operate the internet or doesn't have access to a smartphone that has internet on it, they're blocked from just applying for this job. It's very difficult. And us three have actually gone out there firsthand to do this, but it's difficult to go out there to businesses and receive a job application by hand. They will direct you to where you need to go online. But again, for people who maybe can't even afford internet, they have to find somewhere that does have the access to internet. So this puts a whole additional barrier for those with a record when they're coming out. As you said, Jose, because many of these people have been incarcerated for 20, 30 years prior to this technological age. And then they're just completely lost, much less having to learn how to navigate the GPS or make calls or leave voicemails, emails, things that you mentioned, it's very difficult and it makes employment that much harder for this population. Yeah, just this whole discussion is making me think back to an interview that I actually did in Oregon in their restrictive housing units where this person had been incarcerated for 40 years and he was absolutely terrified to get out and he was getting out in three months because he was just like, I don't even... Like my kids tell me about all of these things that they have to do now. And like five-year-olds know how to use this stuff. And I have no idea. So yeah, it is really interesting. And I'm sure I can't, I mean, the last time I applied for a job on paper was probably 15 years ago. So yeah, just thinking about that, I I don't even know. Coming out of high school, I went to go get my first job at like Home Depot and Macy's at that would like walk you to a computer and they're like, yeah, the applications on that, right? Like that is yeah, like, yeah. in the store. <laughs> is, yeah. Yeah. All right. So Danielle, I know you touched on this more specifically and then Shay and Mateus, you have too, but in your paper, how to overcome the cost of a criminal record for getting hired, you talk about signaling theory. And we've talked about this theory before on the podcast, but can you just give us a brief overview of signaling theory and then how it applies to employment? Yeah, so signaling theory stems from a labor economics theory, which was coined by Michael Spence in 1973, but it basically how it relates to employment and our paper of how to overcome the cost of a criminal record is they explain hiring as sort of purchasing a lottery, so to speak, an investment decision. So for an example, an employer does not really know what one is capable of or what this type of worker they will be prior to hiring them. And therefore, they must take that risk that I was talking about of hiring this individual based on only observable characteristics. And these characteristics in signaling theory are referred to as these hard skills. So only those things that are observable on an applicant's resume. 
And so employers are unable to see the soft skills, which are things like motivation, trustworthiness, whether they're going to be a good worker or not until after they're hired. So having a record increases this risk amongst employers as this mark of having a criminal record serves as a negative signal of poor employability for these applicants, that these individuals are just too risky and too dangerous to be hired. And I know Dr. Janes will have a lot to add to this because she uses signaling theory a lot within her work. Yeah. So it really is because there's this information asymmetry, as Danielle was saying, where they don't know information. They're forced to extrapolate based on what they can figure out. And so all they have oftentimes on paper is this background check. And we know background checks, we're just talking about the age of technology, are becoming increasingly more common. And so what happens now is essentially everyone's doing a background check. They pull up this information and managers have very little information about what to do with this. They all know that they should sort of pull these background checks, but they don't really know what to make of the information. So again, when they see these evidence of convictions or arrests, the stigma just begins to appear and has really severe consequences for likelihood of being hired or called back for an interview. The textbook example, right, just to give context, is the college degree, right? A college degree tells your employer what? That you know a profession, right? That you've been trained in a profession. It also tells your employer that you had enough of a commitment and enough discipline to get a degree in the first place. What we're saying here is that a criminal record is also a signal. And it's a very hard signal to deal with. That's essentially, in my view, that's what the stigma is. The stigma is a signal. And the whole paper, the idea of the entire paper was how to overcome that signal, right? How to make more noise, how to add other signals that help employers see other aspects and maybe overlook the negative signal that the criminal record presumably brings, right? We started from the hypothesis that the criminal record was a negative signal. And for some employers, it was not, surprisingly. But for most of the employers, it was a very negative signal. Do we know anything about how like an arrest versus a conviction goes into this signal? Like, is there any research on that, whether an arrest still works the same as a conviction or vice versa? Not that I know of, Dr. James, do you know? Yeah, so there is very, very little research into this at all. And it's actually something we've been dealing with a lot in our research because a lot of times we just say a criminal record. And so there's a really big gray area of what this means, right? And even there's a lot of gray area in what these records, when you start to pull them, look like what might show up, what might not show up. And the answer is probably most criminologists have very little information about like what these rap sheets would look like or probably couldn't tell you, let alone the average manager who's just pulling this information. So they don't understand necessarily arrest doesn't mean guilty, right? And arrest doesn't mean conviction. And there's sort of a lot of different things that this could really be where ultimately, no, there's no evidence of what that variation looks like and the effect it has. I think if I had to guess, right, if I had to just make a hypothesis, it's probably like you have a record, they sort of treat it as stigma, probably, again, because this information asymmetry, they don't know what to make of it. So they're going to be risk averse and sort of side with, you know, protecting themselves or their business. That's a great research idea to compare arrest. And you could yeah. do that using an experimental vignette that we use, right? Comparing arrest and conviction and see whether it would matter. Dr. James, I think you're pointing out that it probably wouldn't, right? They wouldn't even understand that because they're not criminal justice experts, right? And we are even doing follow-up studies in that line. Like we're trying to investigate, like if you present employers with some piece of research, 
right? Does that change their perspective? If you teach them something about the criminal justice system, does that change their willingness to give those individuals an opportunity? And oftentimes it does. So just information, right? Just inform educating our clientele in this case. Yeah, because as you'll see, as we talk a little bit more about our study, one of our driving factors, I feel like, is what we can do, right? We're academics. We're not necessarily practitioners on the front line. We want to know what we can do today at our desks or, you know, working with practitioners to help inform and educate the system, to help advance things. And so we're always kind of looking for ways that we can get involved and our research can really make an impact. So in this paper that we're discussing, you presented 591 hiring managers to make hypothetical hiring decisions on two nearly identical prospects. You used an A-B approach. So you showed them person A and person B. And the big difference being person B had a criminal record, but you would also randomly manipulate other variables like education, references, work experience. And so just kind of first basic question, what was the motivation behind the study? And sort of what was the gap that you were filling with the study? So Dr. James just mentioned this. We want to have an impact, right? We want to get tenure, of course, get those papers out. We want to try to have an impact before we finish the career here. So the idea was that, okay, we know that having a criminal record carries a ton of collateral consequences. And the fact that having a criminal record is linked with all these other social poverty, marginalization, low education, problematic families, and so on, you know, it's all clustered together, right? We call those cumulative disadvantages, all right? But we wanted to go further than that. We wanted to think about, you know, what can we do to solve the problem, right? You have a lot of that idea in prevention research, right? In programming research as well. All right, all right. It's enough to understand the problem, but it's kind of something a little bit different to understand the solution, to understand the treatment. So that was our goal, right? We got this huge funding from the College of Behavior and Community Sciences here at USF at the University of South Florida. They funded this project. They gave us $20,000 to do a survey with employers. We had a ton of ideas that we want to implement. And one of them was like, okay, I know that having a criminal record carries great stigma. I know that having a criminal record is a problem from pager study and from many other previous research. But we want to move a step forward and think about how can we overcome that record? right? Using our experiment of yet to find practical solutions, right? That can actually help, you know, us inform practitioners and policies and programs in, in terms of how to address the issue. And we think this is a unique opportunity, as we said, because the unemployment rate is so low, everybody needs workers, right? And we have this huge pool of individuals who are available and we need to work and, and working for them would be extremely beneficial. And one thing I want to add is a lot of the what works and things like correctional programming are really hard for me to draw much sense of because a lot of times it's evaluating like a program, sort of like a name brand type program. And sort of the emerging way things are headed is that programming is starting to understand you need to do more than one small treatment, right? It needs to be this sort of holistic approach to helping individuals. And I'm not disagreeing with that. However, as a researcher, it's really hard to identify the causal impact sort of of like what particular aspect of this program is working, what isn't. And so when it's this whole conglomerate of just sort of treatments, it's hard to pick one or sort of decide what should go, what should stay and help strengthen. Whereas this sort of methodology gave us the unique ability to really parse out what is having the causal effect, what is changing perceptions in the mind of employers. So in some ways, we really liked this ability to like 
finely tooth comb and figure out exactly what was going to make an impact. So I'll just add one little thing going off on what they said. They covered everything, but it's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they show that there's over 9 million unfilled job openings. So just in short, we're trying to pinpoint, as Dr. Jane said, what is it exactly that could help these individuals, applicants with a criminal record, overcome this record for hiring managers, looking at those four experimental manipulations of salary, education, references, and experience. What exactly is it that could be a solution to helping these individuals fill those 9 million job openings? How can we as researchers do something on our end to improve and increase the hiring of those with a record? Very cool. All right. So as Jose mentioned, when you set up your two hypothetical people, person B was the one with the criminal record and you had them have a prior conviction for drug possession with the intent to distribute. We can probably kind of guess or assume why you chose this over like a violent crime, but can you tell us specifically why you selected drug possession with the intent to distribute versus a violent crime or other types of nonviolent crimes? All right, I can give you a first shot. So survey experiments like this is all about trade-offs, right? We cannot ask everything. We didn't have much research to base our study off of. So in reality, there's all kinds of decisions we made that thinking back, we're like, ah, we could have done this a little bit differently, right? But that said, I don't regret choosing a drug possession if intent to distribute. In fact, that was a choice by Dr. James, who is more specialized in this line of research. And the idea here is that drug possession is more sensitive, would be presumably more sensitive to our experimental manipulation. If you have a record for multiple homicide with some sex crimes, nobody's going to give you a chance, presumably, right? So it doesn't matter how much I give you in terms of incentives, in terms of, you know, better credentials, in terms of more experience, no employer is going to give you an opportunity because employers are going to feel for their lives. They're going to be afraid for their lives, right? Presumably, right? So we just wanted to deal with a type of crime, which is very common, right? These scenarios, they oftentimes use kind of mild situations, like borderline situations, such as drinking and driving, right? Instead of using homicide, because those borderline scenarios allow for variation in our deep and variable, right? We're going to have more variation in the show higher if we are testing variations across based on drug possession, if intent to distribute drug dealing, right? Drug selling. Then if we are dealing with a very serious offense or a sex offense that people are going to be much more resistant against, And presumably, it's not going to be as sensitive to our experimental manipulations in terms of manipulating the credentials and manipulating the salary. That said, that's another excellent follow-up idea. I'm not sure maybe someone else is going to do it before us. We're not doing it right now, which is the idea of comparing effects across crime types, right? A lot of people have done those kinds of things before. And it'll be phenomenal, right? Do the exact same experimental manipulation across crime types and see what variations you find. To expand on this, also, I think that drug possession is sort of like the poster child for the war on drugs, right? Since the 1970s, this country has been at a war on drugs. And so a big chunk of these criminal records are sort of what we think is maybe the disputed decision that where this country started to get tough was a drug policy decision. And so for me, it was sort of the obvious, where's the policy implication here? 
where can we talk about a big group of individuals that maybe society is debating? And we know this is a big debate currently going on. A lot of states are changing their drug policies right now. So I think that this is a perfect generalizable type of offense that I think everybody knows somebody who's sort of been in this situation. Yeah, I can sympathize with the having to make compromises and having to make those tough decisions. You know, about a month ago, me and some colleagues were developing a survey for like this public opinion study that we're doing. And like, I think it seems simple, but it took us way longer than it maybe should have, or we probably thought it would to come up with what's a crime that we can present to people that, you know, borderline enough to where maybe some people might feel a little sympathetic, but others might not, you know, like we don't want to present them with a crime that's going to unanimously be oh yeah, you definitely deserve hard prison time or unanimously be, you know, the punishment for this is a little too harsh. We don't agree with this, you know, like kind of having to straddle like that perfect line of what's a crime that maybe is a little polarizing on where people might fall can be challenging. It's a little harder, I think, than, than some people might realize. And, you know, you have one chance, right? So if you make a mistake, if you word your questions wrong, if you mess up randomization, if you have an outcome that has no variability, that's it. It's over. 20 grand that you just wasted, right? Of taxpayer money. So that's going to give you a hard time going to bed at night, perhaps. So, <laughs> so we have, yeah. you have to be careful. And we pre-tested it a ton and things like that, you know. One of the strongest findings in the literature, we know, I would say at this point, that there's big variation in willingness to hire, willingness to call back by offense types. So we sort of walk in empirically knowing that if you pick certain, you know, violent sex offenses, you're not going to get a ton of variation. We know this is a difficult spot. Of course, a future area of study could be what can help even those more serious offenses overcome the barrier. But we sort of know the answer that it's going to be much more difficult than sort of the means that we're addressing in our study. And maybe even that, right, Dr. Gis, maybe some offenses are unredeemable from the perspective of employers. And maybe that could be a useful finding as well. Maybe we should focus the resources on people we can help the most, right, or not. Even making that discovery would be interesting in a way. Yeah, but for a follow-up study. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting to see, you know, something like this, this drug offense versus something maybe like what we would consider like a white collar crime, right? Like it's nonviolent, but it might make you seem really untrustworthy to mm-hmm. employers, right? Like Employers, if you're skimming yeah. money from a business that so but anyways, we try not to get too off track here. I <laughs> uh, don't want to give people all of the ideas, right? <laughs> Too late, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's start to get a little bit into the findings of the paper. And the first one that we'd like to discuss, or the first ones, are education and references. So person B's education level and references would be the ones being randomly manipulated. What did you find when looking at person A and B's likelihood of getting hired when manipulating their level of it or when manipulating person B's level of education and their references? I'll take a stab at this one first. So as far as education goes, we found that incomplete degrees may be a sign of risk. So obtaining a GED or a college degree may indicate signs of redemption or signal change as well as signal a low risk. So those two, the GED and the college degrees, were the only ones to cross the threshold of 50. Whereas even receiving a high school diploma or completing some high school or some college had no significant effect to employers. 
In fact, one of our qualitative responses indicated that people who drop out of college with drug possession usually tend to go back to their ways. So that was something that we found in our qualitative responses when looking at these drug sort of charges, dropping out of college, things like that. They kind of labeled them as dropouts. It sended a negative signal to employers that these individuals are just too unreliable. Whereas just completing a degree, even like I said, a GED over a high school diploma showed that sign of redemption, showed that resiliency, that they're able to accomplish and overcome things after their incarceration sentence and still have a complete degree, which we found that to be very important. I want to jump in to talk. I know you guys were interested in how we made some of these decisions on what to look for. And this was one of the things that really excited me because a lot of times, for instance, a GED and a high school diploma are considered equivalents. And we did not make that assumption. And it kind of turned out that we were, our hypothesis was right. We were thinking in the right direction because a high school diploma is sort of seen as like a status quo. Whereas in society, it could have gone both ways. A GED could be seen as, wow, this person's messed up. They had to go get a GED. Or as we found, it was actually, wow, this person had messed up and the GED was seen as a sign of redemption that they were getting their life back on track. They had overcome some sort of hardship. So being able to manipulate these nuances and things that a lot of previous researchers were just sort of lumping together, high school diploma and GED as one category, allowed us to see sort of where we can make an impact. And I was really excited about that because that's one of the big things, for instance, in correctional populations, that's really not that expensive to obtain. It's one thing that we can do fairly simply, help get some GED programs going, help people to overcome this cause was really, really exciting. And mind you, a big finding is that the GED and the full college degree, the signal they present, the positive signal they present, their positive effect is sufficient to offset the negative consequence of the criminal record, which for us is very, very exciting. So you're more likely to be hired with a GED than someone who does not have a criminal record, but also does not have a GED, has less than high school education. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially when you consider that I think that this is still current the like average education level for people in prison is around 11th grade. So that's signaling, you know, they're not obtaining this GED or at least haven't at the time of the interview or whatever. So that could be really beneficial to them then getting those GED programs going. Yeah. It's really interesting finding. Yeah. I think the education findings kind of blew me away. I had to read like those few sentences, like four times. I was like, I'm not, no comprende. I don't, how's a a GED showing higher than some college, but, you know, hearing you talk it out, I think makes a lot of sense. It's interesting because it sort of shows how stigma works in some ways. They're like managers were giving this like temporal ordering to things, right? Like if they saw a GED on your resume, they assume, oh, wow, this person, you know, went to prison, this person got a record or whatever it may be. And then they overcame this. They went and they got that GED, look at them go. Where we don't necessarily write, they don't know that. We didn't tell them that. And then vice versa. It's not that this person, you know, got a record and then they said, oh, I'm going to get my life back on track. I'm going to go get a college degree. I'm going to start taking some college classes. That's not what they're interpreting it as. They're saying in their mind, it was, oh, look, this person was on track. They were doing some college and they dropped out. Right. So it's sort of, it's interesting how stigma works and how they can sort of manufacture these facts and ideals in their head. And no, we, 
in our experimental, there's sort of this limitation that we can only give them sort of this really terse bit of information, which I would argue is somewhat like a resume, right? Like you give them what you give them. You're supposed to just yeah. list these bullets. So I'd say it is very similar to a resume. However, I'm kind of encouraged now that there's more opportunity potentially to explain. There's sometimes boxes where you can explain things or you could highlight and maybe one avenue, again, we didn't test this, so we can't know for sure, but you could emphasize, got my life back on track with a, you know, you could sort of clarify this, knowing these sort of generalizations or negative stories could be built about some college, right? Tell them that you're recently enrolled in college, you're working very hard, and maybe that would have had a different effect if we sort of laid that out, so. All right, so the next thing you looked at was wages then, and was the person with the criminal record more or less likely to, you know, obtain employment or be hired, even if they asked for a lower wage than person A without the criminal record? So that finding for me is fascinating, and it tells you which pitfalls to avoid methodologically, right? So the first thing we did, our initial idea is that we manipulated age in $1 increments per hour of work. And our initial idea was to just calculate a average effect of wage. Like if I increase wage by $1, I'm going to find each $1 increase in wage is going to be associated with this change in willingness to hire, right? And what we found, we were like, oh my God, it was no effect, no average effect, right? No average effect. You could increase wage as much as you wanted. The person with a criminal record always had about 25% chance of being hired, regardless of whether that person asked for $0 per hour volunteering or $15 per hour. But then what we did was that we explored heterogeneity in that effect. So we had such a large sample size, thanks to USF, <laughs> we had more than 600 people that we were able to break down each wage increment and to estimate the effect of each individual dollar. And what we found was that if both candidates, right, the candidate with the criminal record and the candidate without the criminal record, ask for the same amount of money, which we held at $15 per hour, the person with the criminal record had only a 7.5% probability of being selected. If you gave a discount of $2, that probability shot up to 39%. So this is a huge increase from 7.5% to 39%. However, mind you, that was more or less the same probability at all lower wage levels, right? So if you volunteered, your probability of getting the job was also around 40%. And the second thing is, please note that this probability never crossed 50%. So what we found is that a wage discount alone And there are federal programs that give you not a wage discount, but gives you tax credits, right? And it also gives you insurance, the types of insurance. Very low, not very low, but kind of low. But a wage discount alone is not sufficient to offset the cost of the criminal record, but it can help, right? Especially if combined with other things. I want to just briefly for listeners talk about what this wage discount, Dr. Santos touched on a little bit. So we said ask for sort of this reduced wage. And one of the things, right, we had them asking for a wage from 15 to $0. And some of these wages went below the minimum wage. Okay, so we want to clarify, we don't necessarily mean, you know, this applicant walks in and they're like, hey, you know, I just want to let you know I have drug possession and tend to distribute. I'll take 
two bucks an hour. You know, that's not what we are exactly meaning. So that's why we refer to it not just as a wage, but a wage discount, because there are a lot of programs in this country, like he was talking about, there's tax subsidies, different programs could subsidize the costs so they could help match costs. There's various ways that as policy sort of can intervene to help reduce the wage to the employer. Okay, so what the employer actually has to pay out. That's kind of what we were talking about. The avenue of how we get there, we weren't really evaluated. We're just in the mind of the employer. If we can get their wage that you're required to pay down, how much would this influence you? Okay, so we didn't necessarily focus on the specific ways, but we can think of various ways to do it. In fact, that's one thing that I would have changed if I could go back in time is that I would have specified how the wage discount was provided you know, to have a more specific finding, but, you know, and too late. That, that's one of the things also that was interesting because the more we researched into what these low wages, we were concerned actually that asking for a low wage, like, you know, hi, I'm willing to work for $3 an hour could send a negative signal. Like, well, why are you willing to work for so cheap? And that's not what we meant necessarily, right? We were thinking of other ways to get down to that wage. So that's one thing I think that, you know, I agree with them. We could have manipulated differently, but you have to be careful as a researcher to think about what are readers thinking? How could they be interpreting? And again, that's probably why stigma fascinates me because, and why, you know, I love the qualitative responses that we'll eventually talk about because I loved getting more nuance to these decisions that they ultimately made and hearing this train of thought was so fascinating. Going off what Dr. Janes was saying, when these applicants with a record asked for a lower salary, not necessarily meaning they would get paid this lower salary, but as she was saying, this kind of signaled to employers a sign of, we have one quote right here, why put $1 as a wage, just not a good sign of intelligence. Another quote saying, I do not think anyone would work their best at $1 an hour. Another last one I'll share stated, I want any employee I hire to receive a decent wage. $1 per hour is not a living wage. So you can see how when they had a lower wage to these employers, employers didn't feel comfortable with paying applicants such a low amount as it kind of, as Dr. Jane said, signaled that a sense of lower value, a sense of a loss of self-respect as to why this applicant is willing to work for such a low pay. And that was something we found super interesting because, again, should have done a better job sort of clarifying what we meant by that wage discount as a lot of the randomizations fell below that minimum wage. Yeah, but I would add also that we live in a society that a lot of people work for very little and sometimes as a way of investing in their future, right? So one thing we specified, and I think we did so very well, was the $0 volunteer, which happens all the time. Everybody takes you know what I mean? Unpaid internships as a way of getting better jobs, right? As an entry-level position, especially if you are doing some college education, things like that. I did it myself. And huge organizations take advantage of that type of cheap labor, you know, as a way of like bridging the information gaps oftentimes. And volunteering did have a positive impact, but it only put the candidate with a criminal record, it only put his probability, in that case was a male, of getting hired at 40%. Right. So even then, even though that person was volunteering, it still did not cross 50%, but it was much greater than 7.5%. Right. So it was a huge positive impact of volunteering, which tells us what, hey, maybe this is one strategy. Right. Maybe if we give people a scholarship or some type of support that allows them to volunteer for a short period of time, that could give 
those individuals a chance of showing their labor, showing their effort, and maybe, you know, bridge the unemployment gap and get a job on the other side of that experience. Because we all do that, right? When we have the resources, a lot of us do unpaid internships. What is a PhD in many ways is us working for, you know, working and studying at the same time because we have the means to do so, right? In many ways, through subsidies, of course. We were sort of very mindful of that. First, we sort of created the volunteer because we can all imagine being these employing managers where someone comes to you and like, listen, I will do whatever it takes. Let me intern with you. I just want to you know, make good for myself. We can all sort of envision ourselves being sold by this hardworking person just comes up and says, listen, like, let me show you. Let me try. But we're also mindful of the disadvantage this population faces and the vulnerability. And so we're very, you know, we're sort of making this recommendation with a, a large asterisk of, you know, this needs to be monitored. It needs to be, these individuals aren't working for $0 necessarily. They're going to be subsidized. So they're still making a living wage. It's just with organizations helping fund that rather than the employers. And, you know, it, it's certainly something that needs to be watched out for. And maybe before they are released permanently, right? As part of a halfway house strategy, you know. Work release program, something like that. This might just be because of needing to limit the amount of variation that you were looking at, but was there a reason that you capped the amount at $15? Just curious. That's fine. So at $15, we had 16 groups, right? $0 and yeah. every single dollar increment until 15. 16, it tells you what, that we had 630 observations, yeah. I believe, okay. 620. If you divide that by 16, you're going to end up yeah. having relatively few observations. Right, okay. yeah. Too so much for my math. Your methods, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. right. So we try to limit the size of the groups at you know at least 20, 30. Otherwise, things yeah. get start to get a little bit brittle, right? It starts having very high volatility in your estimates. So that was the reason why. And also, oh, the other aspects because we we're asking for about entry level jobs. Okay. Right. And entry level yeah. jobs, as you know, you know. Yeah. And it was about over. So the job was like a $15 an hour job. And so it was about what can the person with the criminal record do to overcome that, to sort of fight their disadvantage. So they would have to go less than the applicant without the record. So, right, we'd only had 15 to zero as our range. However, again, we made the assumption that the criminal record was a stigma and that people weren't going to pay more mm-hmm. than the criminal record. You know, knowing Dr. Santos, he would have loved to see what would happen if he'd go above that and, you know, give him $16. Yeah. <laughs> I do always- think it could be interesting, right? Because it kind of shows that like you maybe don't think yourself as, you know, being stigma or having a stigma. And so, yeah, it would be interesting to look at. Thank you, Jen. More money. Give them money. <laughs> More money. Everybody deserves it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So then the last thing that you looked at was differences in experience level. And so did having more years of experience lead to person B having a higher probability of being hired over person A? Again, a big lesson in treatment effect heterogeneity. If you don't know what that means, it means that first we estimated one single effect for every year of experience, right? We manipulated experience from zero years, from having zero years of experience, meaning no experience, right? All the way to having 10 years of experience in one year increments. And when we run the model and we tested for the average effect of each year of experience, surprise, surprise, we found no impact. So essentially what that first model told us substantively is that adding one additional year of experience carried no 
benefit on average to your employability. And we were like, no, oh my God, this is so weird. No, but of course, what we did was we sat down and we explored our data and we explored for treatment effect heterogeneity. What do I mean by that? I mean, we explored for the impact of each additional year of experience, of each change in year of experience from zero to years to one year, from one year to two years, from two years to three years. So we no longer assumed that all transitions would have the same impact. I say that because we oftentimes we assume that all transitions have the same impact when we do regression analysis. And when we did that, surprise, we found something that was fascinating, in my opinion, of course. We found that if both candidates had no experience whatsoever, the candidate with a criminal record was a lot less likely to be hired than the, than the candidate with the criminal record. But no, the opposite, right? The candidate with the criminal record was a lot less likely to be hired than the candidate without the criminal record, also without any years of experience. But if you gave the candidate with a criminal record one year of experience, so a one-year advantage, just one year of experience compared to no experience whatsoever, that generated a huge jump in that person's probability of being hired. It increased it. It almost doubled it, right? It increased it from 30% to almost 55%. Therefore, it crossed the threshold of 50%. However, we also found that having any more experience beyond that first year carried no additional positive impact. And this is a very cool finding in the sense that for an entry-level job, having one year of experience, like having at least a little bit of experience is key, right? Employers are trying to reduce their costs, reduce their uncertainty. However, if you have... 10, 5, 10, 15 years of experience, nobody cares, right? Just have one and that's enough to allow you to join the labor market. It's the most cost-effective option from what we could find. Another important finding from experience was that, interestingly, it does not matter where this experience was, whether it was inside or outside of prison. And I feel like that's something we should discuss because, in Lindsay's Damned If You Do, Damned If You Don't qualitative study in 2022 published in Criminology, this looks at what she referred to as the prison credential dilemma. And a lot of the participants in the study had issues of not knowing whether or not to disclose their experience or their credentials that were obtained while they were incarcerated because, in fact, they thought sharing that could be a negative signal to employers reminding them of their incarceration sentence. But in fact, we found that it really doesn't matter if this experience was in prison or not. It's good to share in an interview and an application process because from our study of the 591 hiring managers, they didn't mind this experience, whether it was in prison. They actually looked at it as a good thing, as Dr. Santos said, just having the key was just having at least one year of experience. It didn't matter more or less from this point of where your experience took place. So I think that's really important to inform policy and inform the incarcerated population that when you're in an interview and an application process, share your credentials, no matter where you earn them at, share what you got, because in the end, they're actually important and they seem to benefit you from our study's findings. With the important caveat that the employer already knew that the criminal record existed. So given an applicant has a criminal record, they already sort of know the stigma is already there. Now it's about the experience overcoming that. They don't care. As long as there was some experience, they didn't care where it came from. 
which is really cool. And just one year is much more feasible than if they needed five or 10 years. So I think that has a great policy implication. Yeah. And I think it's really, really promising for, you know, correctional programming, looking at getting people jobs when they release, make sure they understand that the work that they're doing while in the facility or the training that they're undergoing is experience and it matters and it's important because it's, you know, it's not just about the work to help the correctional facility. It's about work to gain the important skills that employers value. Yeah. And for these entry-level jobs, experience is everything we, we came to find, right? For them, it saves a lot of cost. So you have to show you have at least a little bit. And just real quick, the Lindsay paper that y'all referenced, episode 57 of the Criminology Academy podcast, we had Shadi Lindsay, who actually talked about that paper. So quick reference. Fantastic. We cited a lot. It was brilliant. All right. So one of the other things that you did in this paper that we found really interesting was that you had the actual qualitative data, right? The explanations from the hiring managers, you know, how they made their choices. You provided them with the opportunity to explain their choice in this qualitative open-ended way. Can you tell us more about what the manager said was the criminal record this like constant force in their responses for how they made their decision? I'll dive into this one, Dr. Santos, and then you can pick up from there. But yes, obviously the applicant with a criminal record was definitely a constant amongst the hiring manager's responses. In fact, we created a code that was called avoid criminal record, and it was probably the most used code across all four categories of our manipulations of references, salary, experience, and education. And it seemed that many employers were just reluctant of hiring an applicant simply for having a record. So we have numerous of these responses really demonstrating how this stigma attached to having a criminal record remains and holds constant despite their education level, the references they have, salary, or years of experience. So lots of responses from the qualitative responses included things like A, meaning person A did not have a criminal record. B did. Another quote, I would rather no conviction. Another quote, person A has a better chance because the record is clean and trust has already been built due to no criminal history. So it really didn't matter when the app, when the applicants had the same level of experience, education level, salary or references, responses always noted that even though these were the same, it was the record that would held them from selecting person B. And we thought that was very interesting because, as I said, even if things were equivalent amongst person A and person B, responses always seem to indicate that it was the record that was the issue holding them back from hiring and choosing this applicant. Funny story is that this was not initially in the paper, right? Initially in the paper, we just had in the conclusion, we used some quotes to contextualize some of the findings, in part because this is such a new study that there wasn't much literature to discuss some of the findings, you know? So we used a little bit of the quotes. Then, you know, one of the reviewers was like, ah, Sounds like you have very rich information there. Why do you don't just add a whole qualitative analysis to your paper? And we're like, no. <laughs> they said, yeah. oh, I think you're going to have to. <laughs> so there you go. And, and honestly, it was very interesting to do. Danielle has a lot of training in qualitative analysis, so we took advantage of the classes she's taking. It mm-hmm. turned out very nicely. And what we found is that we, we found very different reasons between the candidate, I'm sorry, the manager who picked person A 
who picked the candidate without criminal record relative to the manager who picked the candidate with the criminal record. When the manager picked the candidate without the criminal record, is as Danielle said, it was because of the record, right? They said, hey, I hate this record. Either I think this makes this person unsuitable or too risky for my business, or I cannot even hire this individual, right? We had about 3% of employers could not hire people for criminal record because they were in education or they were in healthcare. They were dealing with vulnerable populations that prevented them from even giving those individuals an opportunity, right? Some people, about 6% actually, even said that the drug record was their main concern, not just the record, but the fact that it was a drug record. Why? Because drugs, they tend to you know, keep you looped in, right? They tend to be a recurring problem, right? It's very hard to break away from drugs. So the drug record, we think, oh, the drug record is so mild. It's not going to be such a big deal. For some people, it is a huge deal because they may have had negative experiences with drugs and with addiction that, you know, lead them to believe that those persons are unredeemable. On the flip side, what I would add regarding people who picked the candidate with the criminal record, it was very interesting in that about half about 50% of people, they indicated, hey, I want someone who has more education. I want someone who's going to cost me less money. I want someone who has more experience, especially more experience. 70% of the employers said, hey, more experience is everything I need in my life, right? I was blown away how important experience is for those employers relative to even references or education, I would say. But education also very important. But about half of the employers, they said, hey, I want to help. I believe people can be redeemable. I just want to give them a chance, right? And I separated some quotes here because, and those are very unique, okay? Most people just had a desire to help, but some individuals, they said they had some surprising responses such as people who saw a positive signal from the criminal record. So a few respondents, like roughly 2%, one point something percent, actually saw the criminal record as something positive and they saw his conviction allows him to work harder and be willing to learn as if like, okay, you have a conviction. It means you do things, right? You're an active person and you're going to be more willing to take advantage of the opportunities that are given to you. Another person said, people with a record have more drive And we actually have a whole analysis that we also did in this paper that like employers who have a criminal record tend to give more opportunities to people with a criminal record as well. There's a huge role of empathy. Employers who have a GED tend to give more opportunities to people with a criminal record as well, you know? So that's another very important element. And one of the respondents gave like a very funny practical reason that respondent said, when enterprises hire people with criminal records, their retention rate may be higher. So that employer was like, hey, I want to hire someone who is at a bigger disadvantage so I can keep them around for longer. So there's Uh, a practical reason. What I was was surprised about is like how many employers are just willing to extend a hand if they are able to manage their risk, you know, if we're able to bridge that gap and, and help them manage that risk. And we can do that. That's, you know, as an educational institution, we have a big power of giving people credentials, right? Of vouching for people. So we can step in and do a lot of good things as a university. Yeah. The manager with like the criminal record was like one of the first things that popped into my head. I was like, I wonder how many of those actually have records themselves or like GD themselves. So that was sort of my base assumption. I want another hopefully quick question. And Hopefully I'm not like stepping into a do not enter zone, but you know, I was in like your first table, I saw that you had like the service types for the jobs. Were you able to maybe start sort of disentangling to see if being a construction manager versus like a healthcare manager 
had an impact on whether they were willing to give some of the criminal record a chance? No, we didn't, Jose. To answer your first question, 12.4% of the managers in our sample had a prior criminal record, which is huge. And this is America. A lot of, so many people have a criminal record that even a sample of hiring managers, we pay them a lot of money to take this survey up to $25, 12.4%. So we had like roughly 80 people with a criminal record in our sample. 70 in something. We do not make an analysis by industry, Jose. What you're suggesting is a moderation type of analysis, right? It's to test mm-hmm. for effect heterogeneity across characteristics of the hiring managers. And that gets very tricky because you need an enormous sample, okay. right? Yeah. First, it's very hard to classify industry. Like, for instance, construction, only 10.8% of our employers are in construction. Right. The main one here is professional, which means like lawyers, doctors, and things like that. It's just, it becomes very hard from a simple perspective, right, to do those types of moderations, but it could be done. And given, given prior research, I think you're on the right track. I don't think, or I completely expect that there would be differences in effects. We aren't able to tease them out because of, you know, statistical power, but I completely agree with you. It'd be an interesting avenue. And it's sort of, you know, what you would expect that construction, fast food, things like that would be more likely to consider people with criminal histories. But I think there's also been some interesting work. I know Megan Denver's done some fascinating stuff about healthcare because it's sort of, you know, where do we go after? Do we focus our efforts on industries that already are more open-minded to people with criminal records or hiring people with criminal records? Or do we focus on industries that have historically been very close-minded and risk-averse to these individuals? And I think that's a really interesting avenue for future research is sort of where do we target? What do we do? And where can we get the most, you know, bang for our resources? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, just from anecdotal stuff, like a lot of people I know end up in like fast food or construction. Those are, I think, from my experience, like the two biggest ones that seem to be the most willing. So we have kind of basically sprinkled this throughout the entire episode, but just to kind of maybe bring it all together, wrap it up in a nice bow, uh, given everything that we have discussed so far, what would you say are the potential implications of this paper not just on research, but also policy and practice. I'm sorry to interject, Jose. There was one thing that we missed from the education and references question. We actually, us three, we only talked about our education findings. And I think it's important that we emphasize our references findings. So if you want me to touch base on that or us three touch base on that before we do this wrap up question or however you want to do it. Yes, absolutely. I completely forgot that that was part of the question. No worries. I just think it's important, especially for what we do in academia, to share a finding such as this. So we found, as far as references go, we found that any reference was better than no reference, of course, though references that were linked to the criminal justice system did seem to have less of an impact or influence because it highlighted that one has a record and employers stated that the they found these references to be less reliable from those that were linked to the CJ system. So for example, one employer in our study stated, a parole officer isn't much value as a reference as they're overworked and don't really know their wards. But what we did find most importantly about references was that a previous employer when university professors did have an impact serving as a reference as it demonstrated more credibility as well as a signal of a sign of success outside of prison. And we thought that was very important, again, from what we do in academia and having a university professor 
basically being able to network with those applicants that have a criminal record and be able to form a sort of relationship to get to that point to utilize a university connection professor to serve as a reference for them. And that significantly improved their willingness to hire. I hadn't even thought about the fact that some of them may use a parole officer for references. I wouldn't see that as maybe something that would be helpful because they're not going to really know them or their experience or employment history. But that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. But if you think about it, the parole officer in theory should be the person most closest connected to sort of the redemption and them being, you know, if you're under criminal justice supervision, you're meeting with your parole officer or probation officer. They know exactly what you're supposed to be doing. They know they've been doing drug testing on you. They've been, you know, they've been monitoring. So if I were an employer, I don't know, I think this would really matter to me how the, you know, PO thinks they're doing. But to sort of summarize and go back to your initial kind of big picture point, I think these results were really, really interesting. Just as the title says, it shows there are ways that people can overcome the cost of a criminal record. And so that really excites me. One, I hope people replicate these findings, not only in an experimental setting like we did with this A-B testing, but also potentially in more real world settings where people are actually going out, maybe audit studies. I also think it's just exciting to show while we found that there are some, we were only able to manipulate certain characteristics. And I encourage researchers to go out and find other ones to continue to build this body of literature, showing us, well, what can we do? Because looking for these real world practical sort of levers that we can pull is really, really exciting to me. And we found that the criminal justice system in line with what Danielle was presenting, like it can do relatively little on its own in terms of reentry, right? We put a lot of the responsibility for reentry on the criminal justice system, on the impact of prison. And our study was like, all right, so people just left this huge spell, this huge time under incarceration. Like what can we do afterwards to support them and which institutions can step in to really vouch for them, right? To provide them with those credentials and those instruments to succeed after they've been released, right? We like to say a lot, we like to mention a statistic in criminology that two-thirds of people, recidivism rates are at about two-thirds. Okay, great. Two-thirds roughly, right? Depends how you measure. It's it's very complicated. But there is one-third of people there that they do not recidivate. And they, they carry all these disadvantages after incarceration. And I wonder, are we really giving them the opportunity to succeed? Are we really supporting people who deserve an opportunity, right? To get a job and to grow on their careers and to get a second chance for such a small crime relatively, such as drug use with intent to, to distribute oftentimes, right? Incarceration sentences in America are huge. Mass incarceration just became a catch-all way of dealing with all kinds of disadvantages. And we are not thinking about the other side of the coin enough in terms of how to spend resources intelligently to leverage what America has, which is this enormous, powerful market to support those individuals well enough, right? And the fact that so many people with a criminal record do not have jobs is disheartening and it doesn't make no, no sense, especially given how many jobs are available out there. And so, and what we found is what? Simple, right? Universities can step in. And when universities step in, hey, we can give them an education. We can help sort out between the individuals with a criminal record who are willing and able to get an education, to get a certification, to get a degree, and very likely those individuals are also the same ones. We can take advantage of that selection into program completion to help them succeed in the labor market as well. 
and through other strategies as well. But a big thing we try to emphasize is how universities can step in and how we can vouch for formerly incarcerated individuals and, and help that sorting process in terms of who would take the most advantage of an opportunity. And to just assume that the criminal justice system should do all of that sorting on their own is just unrealistic. They don't have enough resources and nor do they have the expertise, nor do they have the connections with employers and so on and so forth. And it's not just about helping the individuals with criminal records. It's sort of a mutually beneficial relationship. If we can help the employers, we know people are struggling, employers are struggling in this market to find high quality applicants. And it's about making that match, helping both parties to succeed and help the overall economy. Well, those are all the questions that we had for you today. We had a blast talking to you about this paper. It was super interesting. Like I said, I had to read a couple of those findings a couple of times to really wrap my head around them because I they really were surprising and super interesting. Is there anything any of you would like to plug? Anything we should be on the lookout for in the near future? We're going to write it better next time so you can understand in the first. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is amazing to do research that can potentially have an impact. But I think the challenge is the next step, right? It's very easy for us as academics to just, okay, I did my research. It's out there on the world. Who cares? Right. Mm -hmm. So how and I think we have a lot of people thinking about this, right? Translational criminology, high impact criminology. How can we take those findings and really convert them into a policy, into interventions that can work? Right. Professors should be could get if they want more involved in reentry. Awesome. Why don't we try that? Why don't we go out there, try to raise some money and try to develop our own reentry programs, our own employment programs? And we try to, oh, we Dr. Jean just mentioned, hey, we can match formerly incarcerated individuals with employers. Hey, that sounds like a matching algorithm. Guess who can develop matching algorithms? We can. We have those techniques, right? We know those tools. So we can do more. And it's very easy for us to just run the models, publish the paper and walk away and say, oh, we'll deal with my smart findings. But I was hoping we could try to do more or at least get tenure while we try. But let's see. Yeah. <laughs> Or not. We really appreciate the opportunity to disseminate this research. We've been making a lot of effort to get this out there and kind of tell people what we found. So we thank you guys for your podcast and giving us this chance, this spotlight. I second that. Thank you so much for this opportunity. As Dr. Santos was saying, you know, your paper gets published in a high journal, but how many people are actually going to be reading that? Most of all, academics. So this is I hope a way that we can be translational criminologists and look at the importance of our findings that hopefully can produce important, meaningful policy interventions for such a significant population with extreme barriers. So thank you both for this opportunity. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and taking the time to do this with us. It was great learning more about your research and just how you know applicable it can be to policy and practice. I know we've done kind of a podcast episode on this before, but one thing, if you want suggestions, is other people have said, you know, write a one page synopsis on what your study is and try and get it out to policymakers or employers or whatever, something that they can understand. That could be one avenue. I don't know if you've already done that, but definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great. And finally, where can people find you? Email what was formerly known as Twitter, which is <laughs> X. X. Yeah, X, X. <laughs> yeah. We're all so, on Twitter. Yeah. yeah we we're are all, all yeah. <laughs> and we're all faculty members and graduate students at USF at the University of South Florida. If you just check out Department of Criminology at the University of South Florida, you're gonna find us in our nice pictures. Hey, thanks for listening. 
Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.